Coalition. Five guys that this particular writer, these are his five favorite thinkers on Romans. And he asked all of them, you know, what are you, what, what's your most difficult passage? And none of them mentions Romans 9 through 11. Well, no, 11.26 is mentioned a good bit. All Israel will be saved. Right. That, that's like usually right. in there. But Romans 7 is the big one, you know. Yeah. So, which I did. <laughs> You're right. right. I don't know. It's, it's, the, well it's, the, it's the way with the, the, the Lord is cast in the lap, but, you know, the disposing there is the, of, of the Lord's. Anyway, Romans 9, 1 through 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Romans 9, 1 to 9. Let's call this class, Is You Is or Is You Ain't Israel? <laughs> is You Is or Is You Ain't Israel? Yeah, man. Can, can you sing that, please? Yeah. I don't know how it goes. I could probably do the Tom and Jerry version. That's what I meant. <laughs> but it actually predates that. Whoever wrote that song got it from a guy that wrote, uh, wrote about Southern culture and stuff like that, like way back in the 1920s. So Romans 9 through 11, those three chapters. This, this is the Israel dilemma. We could call it the Israel dilemma. It's all about Israel's salvation, 9 through 11, and what that means. Along with all that goes in that. All right, well, obviously, we know we're going to talk about the whole election predestination thing. But this is really, in Paul's mind, I think, the Israel dilemma. And he's saying, oh, Paul is like a... Anybody in here ever play chess? Yeah, chess, chess is a highly intellectual game. Um, it's not for wusses. And it's not for people that are impatient. Uh, <laughs> just wonder why I like it, but I haven't played it in a while. But anyway, chess is always anticipating the next several moves, if you can. Paul is always anticipating the concerns that the people he's going to have, the people that he's teaching to, are going to have. And... Um, I think this is part of that. What does the church think about Israel? It's a very important question. Because Paul has said a lot thus far about being dead to the law. Right? About a righteousness apart from the Mosaic law. That none are made right by keeping the Mosaic law. That living life under the Mosaic law is misery for those that are trying to live it the way they live it. Not that the law is miserable, but the way people are trying to attain righteousness and the way that people are trying to get sanctified by going to the law leads to a life of misery. So you get all this sort of stuff connected with the Mosaic law. Now, you've got to keep in mind that the Roman church likely has a Jewish minority and a Gentile majority that Paul is writing to because in 49 AD, all the Jews were expelled from Rome 
because Claudius had pretty much had it with sort of the fighting intention that was going on between uh, factions. Many of them were Christians that were Jews or non-Jews. And so they were expelled. And we know this even from Scripture with reference to Priscilla and Aquila. But then they came back. And by the time they came back, of course, you had ten years of Gentile Christianity in Rome. So that's part of the issue that Paul's dealing with in the whole letter. There are many... That, that was another interesting topic of those five... of the author of the article I referenced a few moments ago in the Gospel Coalition, a gentleman who was interviewing five of his favorite authors, Tom Schreiner, Doug Moo. Those are the names that I know, but I can't remember the other ones. Uh, the sort of... What do you think is the theme of Romans? And it, no one nails it down. There's like no agreement broadly on what is Romans all about. Well, they all agree it's about the gospel, right? It's Paul's great work in the gospel, but different people with different sort of, well, I see this, I see that. So, there's a, there's a, a Gentile majority there. And now the Gentile majority has heard a lot of things about all these things I just referenced about the law. Some modern approaches based on Scripture, question mark, are many of the church's approaches and thoughts about Israel scriptural? So we have, with dispensationalism, we have Israel at the heart of many dispensational denominations. It's all about Israel, from the minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed. That's not an exaggeration, you know. Uh, there's a constant focus on Israel in the news, right? Uh, I think it used to be Jimmy DeYoung used to say, we, we, we watch, basically we're watching the news about Israel because... The news for today sets the stage for the fulfillment of the prophetic, right? Everything is about Israel in their minds. He who blesses Israel will be blessed. Who he curses, Israel will be cursed. People still push that on the church today. People within the church push that on the church. There's this constant assumption politically among many Christians that Israel is always in the right without any regard for the well-being of Palestinian people. Okay? The poverty and some of the poverty and some of the oppression, genuine expression, that are experienced by some Palestinian peoples. There's always a sort of constant, without even discussion, Israel all good, Palestine all bad, without regard for all the little children and all the other stuff. Yeah? Just, just a bit of an aside for people to understand when we're talking about Israel today or the Jews today, that approximately 80% of them are secular. Many yeah. of them are atheists. Yeah. The majority Thanks. of them are non-practicing Jews of Judaism. Um, so it's a very... Uh, and, and in Israel itself, other than Jerusalem, the cities are like any other city in the world. Tel Aviv is a very ungodly... They call it the city of sin. Mm -hmm. The Jews themselves do. And they have the second largest gay parade in the, in the world mm -hmm. um, that they celebrate yeah. in Israel. Yeah, thanks for that. That, that. that is an important note. That's a very important note because many people within uh, certain sects of Christianity, again, particularly dispensationalists, believe that God has two plans of salvation. One for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. Am I right, brother? So, that's a problem. Right? Or, there's also the other extreme. Has the church replaced Israel? Which is called what? Replacement theology. Right? Who's buried in Grant's tomb? <laughs> Replacement theology. So, Romans 9 through 11, I think, answers all these questions and more, but without all that background noise. We don't have to answer, though. The text, if the text, we allow the text to speak for itself, it should 
just push a lot of those questions aside as sort of ancillary or not that important either. You know, there are churches today, I could be mistaken, I know it used to be the case that John Hagee's church down there in Texas, he'd have the American flag here and the Israeli flag on the other side of the stage, along with armed guards up on the stage. But he probably needs at this point. <laughs> so there's that, right? There's that. That's very big. I mean, that's very big. And in particular, it's very big in dispensational thought, which is always Arminian thought. Which is, again, within Christianity, although we hate to have things fall down exactly along two lines, there are a pretty sharp line, dividing line between what we would call Arminians and, and non-Arminians or Calvinists. That's a very sharp line of distinction. There's no blurring those two lines and there's very little intersection of those lines. And people in each of those camps often fall down on issues in, in, in very different ways. And in Romans 9 and 11, 9 through 11, it talks about a lot of that stuff and helps us get a, a really good understanding. We really have a, the men have a, the task cut out for them in going through this because it's very easy to become bogged down, for example, in the predestination question. All right? And other things will come up. So, verses 1 and 2, and Paul says, You know, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I thought, Why does Paul just not come out and say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish? Why does he go through this whole idea of, oh, Look, I'm, t- I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit. Well, I think there's a reason why Paul has to be this, sound this persuasive. Uh, Wally, Acts chapter 2, please, verses 17 to 21. I can't read. I don't have my glasses today. I'm sorry. Mike, would you do that? What is it again? Acts chapter 2, 17 to 21. Uh, Randy, would you do Romans 3, 7 to 8? And uh, Kelly, how about 2 Corinthians 10, 10, please? So you can just blurt out. I'm not going to comment on the passages. So as soon as one, one is done reading, the other fall. So Acts 2, 17 to 21. Acts is in the New Testament, right? It is. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your younger men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, it's a great passage and I have no idea why it's in there. Um, actually, I do. I'm using a... Bl- long story short, this keyboard on this computer doesn't work because it got wet once. So I have a Bluetooth keyboard and that Bluetooth... Bluetooth keyboard is pretty good, but once in a while you hit a key and it doesn't catch. So, that's either supposed to be, there's a number missing in there. So, that is not the passage that I wanted. It has, <laughs> no, that's, no, it's actually supposed to be Acts 21. It's supposed to be Acts 21. And it starts and finishes in like 17 to 21. I know, isn't it perfect? Uh, I'm confused about the passage and the Bluetooth. I know, right? <laughs> I'll get to, get to the Bluetooth another time. It's supposed to actually be at, uh, 20, chapter 21, verses 17 to 21. So let me just let me just quickly read through that for you. Let me read that through you. Uh, when we had come to Jerusalem, you got it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, actually, all right, 21, 17 to 21. Read the right thing. Come on. I know. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James. 
And all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who believed. And they are all zealous for the law. But they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. Thanks. Randy? Romans 3, 7 and 8. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good make that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Thanks, Kelly. Second Corinthians 10, 10. Yes. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. So Paul is just often accused of having bad motives, of lacking of authority, of not being honest, of you know saying really strong things against the Jews as well. He says some pretty hard things, okay? Over there in Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 5. And somebody go to 2 Thessalonians 14 to 16. 2 Thessalonians 14 to 16. Todd, would you get that? Sec- I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter two, Look, man, next time get fourteen to sixteen. Okay? Yeah, that's not, that's, that's not the Bluetooth. No, it's just me. First Thessalonians two, you said fourteen to sixteen, and, and just read it in one second after I read the Romans two five <coughs> passage. Okay, Romans two five. This is the stuff you never anticipate when you're preparing. It just. But because you're hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's talking to Jews here. Take that passage then. But you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord, Jesus, and the prophets, and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. So can you see why Paul has to sort of he he wants to persuade them. Look, I'm not I'm not, I'm speaking the truth in Christ here. I, I'm not lying. My my conscience bears me witness. What you know, Christ is at work in Paul. What Paul is about to write is owing to his closeness to Jesus. It's the gospel at work in him, and Paul finds it necessary to let his fellow Jews sort of know that the one that he is addressing, because again of the situation. I think the minority population of Jews in Rome, the other things that Paul has said, Paul's reputation for. Button heads with Jews throughout yeah, the empire. Don't forget his, his past, too. Yeah. Paul was a persecutor of the Jews, and they're not taking him. Persecutor well, he was a persecutor of the church. Christian, he was a persecutor yeah. of the Jews, yeah. yeah. So it, it, the point it is, this moral. is not just hyperbole on Paul's part. I mean, Paul is in emotional and spiritual agony over something. He's really agonizing. All right? And we know what agony is like. And so he's just. This is a this is a this is a spirit produced concern, uh, and he says, "For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh." Ethnic national Israel is anathematized; they are cut off from Christ and condemned to hell. My brothers, according to the flesh, that's his great concern. You know how it is when you have a great get together somewhere; you have a great experience doing something with a bunch of people 
and you're feeling good about it and suddenly you remember someone that can't be there because either they're maybe they got a problem like if it's a family thing they got a problem with drugs and they just couldn't be there or you, know, you just have had this really uplifting time and you just your unity and everything that you experience as a people whether it's a big holiday gathering or a great church thing and then and then for some reason someone they're just away from Christ or something they can't be there and you just suddenly have this sort of deep sadness that just comes right home to you you know man they're not here or oh, man you know that person died in unbelief or I think that's kind of where Paul's at he said man I wish I just wish, I would have myself cut off I could wish and I'll be honest with you I don't know why Paul just doesn't say I wish that I myself were accursed instead of I could wish except that the could wish might just indicate that it's obviously not possible. Let's say maybe he's just indicating there it's really not possible that I could be cut off, but... Think of Moses when uh, he says about, to the Lord, Lord, if you will not forgive these people, yeah. you know, take my name out of the book of life. Yeah, thanks. I mean, you're, you're a step ahead of... A step ahead exactly where I am in that, um, which is exactly what he said, you know? That whole sense of... <sighs> wow, I would just do anything. Yes. Kind of like what Moses did with the Israelites. You know, if you cut off this people, mm-hmm. then what's that going to say to the nations and how that gives them a platform for railing against the eternal God? Yeah, and I, w- I would say your specific point probably fits in especially good with verse 6, which we'll get to. You know, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. So, because mm-hmm. there is that real concern. Yeah. yeah, Moses always had a concern about the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. You know, there are those that believe we should not witness the Jews. There are. There are Christians that believe that we should not witness the Jews. And plenty of Jews that believe we should witness the Jews. <laughs> this is an article in, in uh, an article in a 2013 Baltimore Sun article that I just I remembered coming across years ago and it came to mind, so I looked it up and found it. Um, so there was this local Baptist group doing this evangeli- evangelizing in this, l- this well-known, largely demographically Jewish community. And uh, the executive produ- the, I'm sorry, the, the executive director of the Baltimore Jewish Council was responding to the idea that one can be a Christian and remain a Jew because that was what this Baptist minister said. And he said, quote, "The argument is deceptive, and rabbis of any established branch of Judaism would reject the notion of a quote Jewish Christian as oxymoronic, a contradiction of basic theological principles. The argument and the campaign advancing it, are very offensive to the Jewish community, he said, adding that he would object less if the pitch made clear that to accept Christ is to become Christian and cease to be Jewish in a religious sense. It's funny because there's a lot of truth and untruth in that at the same time. There is a sense in which there's a real theological distinction. A real, right? Obviously. There's also the real sense of the whole question of the study again. Is you Israel? Is you ain't Israel? You know, because we're going to see in a minute why that's the case. There was another rabbi that said, if they're so concerned about the welfare of Jews, they would do better to contribute money to Jewish nursing, nursing homes, soup kitchens, and schools rather than obsessing about Jewish souls. We don't see anything wrong with our souls. Yep. As a matter of fact, a lot of the money that John Hagee and company raised for Israel doesn't go for gospel purposes. That's right. It's going for secular mm-hmm. reasons mm-hmm. for the kinds of things that you just mentioned. Yep. And another point just to bring out too, currently today, you cannot preach the gospel in Israel, in mm. Jerusalem. You would be arrested. It's a law on the book. Yep. If you try to preach the gospel, you will be arrested. Nice, huh? Nice. <clears throat> so, you know, keep that in mind. This is the kind of stuff that you don't hear. What you constantly hear is, you know, 
yeah, Israel, 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 we should be on the side of Israel, Israel. And you know, politically speaking, I guess in a practical sense, they are completely surrounded by their enemies, so that's okay. But there's a lot of other people over there that are non-Israel people that are suffering big time. And some of it because of the hand, much of it because of the, a lot of it because of the hands of the Jews. It's just that simple. It's not offensive. So, Paul is sort of heartbroken. And, and so if it was possible, which it isn't, right, Paul would take their place, like you referred to, when Moses said, but now if you will forgive this sin, but if not, please blot me out of, blot me out of the book that you have written, if you will forgive their sin. Very interesting, way back there in Exodus, isn't it? That Moses would say that. But, for a different reason though. I mean, I, I, I get that point, and I, Gary brought it up, and I put it in, in the lesson as well. But it is a little bit different. Moses is not offering to exchange his self for the sake of his people. He just said, give her to me then. Because if, if you're not going to forgive them, I don't want to. I, I can't be a part of this either. You know, I just can't live thinking that they can't be forgiven. So they have that in common. Uh, but it is a big, a big, big thought on Paul's part. If it were possible, I guess, you know, I would do that. And nobody really knows the full agony of being cut off from Christ. You know what I mean? So it's, it's hard to risk. And maybe that's probably, you know, certainly we see the, ins- the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, I could wish <laughs> if it were possible, but it's not possible for me to really wish that. Yeah, I've witnessed the gospel of quite a few Jews over years and um, uh, one recently that comes to my mind, but they recognize that there's a disconnect, a spiritual disconnect, especially the Reformed Jews, that uh, they know nothing about God. They know nothing about their own scriptures. They are secular, and there's this vacuum that needs to be filled. It's the reason why Christians still ask questions by Jews. So, I mean, it's the reason why people come up, Jews have come up to me and asked me about certain theological things. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's hard. It, it's ingrained in them. And um, I think that's the open door for the Christian mm-hmm. to go back to the Jew in their history and say God has not alienated you even now mm-hmm. um, I don't know I mean I just I've had experiences with Jews before and, and they are so far they don't understand their Bible mm-hmm. and yet they have this angst to want to ask the Christian about the Bible well, look at Ben Shapiro Ben Shapiro was a very orthodox Jew and you can you can Google you can look up where he, he interviews John MacArthur he also interviews um, he interviews Ravi Zacharias he might and there's one other one that he also does William Lane Craig Ben Shapiro sits down William Lane Craig you'd appreciate that Harrison especially Um, and I I think I saw two of those I didn't see the Ravi Zacharias one but he just has he'll have nothing to do with it you know he'll have nothing to do with it and I don't even know how they reconcile in their own mind they have no sacrifice I don't know how they deal with their sin do you? What, what big? What's the big deal of the Jewish Day of Atonement? Who? What's what, what's happening on the big Jewish Day of Atonement? What you sit around your house and think about how you, you how you you know? I mean, I don't want to I don't want to attack anybody's religion in that way, but there's nothing. There's no temple. There's no sacrifice. There's no nothing. Their rabbinic writings have tried to answer those kinds of questions in the Mishnah because they don't have a sacrifice. They don't have a temple. There's mm-hmm. no altars left. So this is where you get rabbinic oral traditions, and and they just, they just want to try to maintain Judaism, but they, the heart of it is gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Don't yeah. they? Don't they have <coughs> mosques or not mosques? <laughs> temples, small <laughs> temples, or oh yeah, they have yeah. temples all over the place. And, and don't synagogues. Oh, yeah. Synagogues. They call it temple shalom right. or temple banai. They call them temples. These yeah. different things. Yeah. So when they go to temple, mm-hmm. as, as they used to tell me they would do, they go even on the day of atonement, and they would look to do some kind of a sacrifice, some kind of a good deed, something for someone else. Mm. Uh, maybe it's a contribution financially to something, or like you were saying before, and uh, then they would consider their sins, and that would basically wow. be it. Yeah. Well, that doesn't seem to capture much of it. Keep in mind too that there are numerous sects within religious Judaism. Mm-hmm. They're not a monolithic group. Right. So when you're talking yeah. about the religious Jew, you're not talking about one body of no. people. Mm-hmm. There are variances. We're talking about how many different Protestant denominations there are. Mm-hmm. The Jews have multitudes of denominations. You go down to the Western Wall even, and you'll see how divided they are among themselves there. Mm-hmm. Paul, again, remember, he was really the quintessential Jew, right? He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the tribe of Benjamin, right? Advanced well beyond his contemporaries, student of Gamaliel, etc., etc. Paul says, these are my kinsmen according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Now, Here's the first place in Romans 9 where we see a distinction being made. Okay? You might think it comes a little bit later, but it actually doesn't. There's a reason why Paul says he's my kinsman according to the flesh. That's a defining distinction taking place here. And that's going to play out in many ways throughout the course of the next three chapters. And Paul's going to continue to emphasize this distinction, this Ezu is or Ezu ain't Israel distinction throughout all three of these chapters in different ways and for different reasons. But the question behind the question that he's asking is always this. It's always this distinction that he makes for the first time right here. My kinsmen according to the flesh. And he goes on to give eight reasons why it was really cool to be an Israelite. You know? What's the big deal about being an Israelite? So, this showed up a little bit earlier in Romans. But we get a lot more sort of meat on, on the on the skeleton here, right? So he says, first of all, theirs is the adoption. Okay, theirs is the adoption. Exodus four twenty two. And uh, somebody go to Jeremiah thirty one nine, please. Somebody, Joycelyn, thanks. Jeremiah thirty one nine. But Exodus four twenty two. Again, we're talking about adoption. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. He calls Israel his son. Okay? Jeremiah 31.9 They will come with weeping, and they will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Because I am Israel's father, Mm. So, you just get this sense then, and we talked a little bit, you know, Barry spoke about adoption. One of the things that we all sort of mentioned afterwards is inherent in the whole concept of adoption is choosing. You know, we, in fact, we had a discussion afterwards that, um, uh, you know, children that are adopted are sort of like chosen among all the potential children that could be adopted, you know. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with being naturally born, right? But, the interesting, but 
<laughs> There's no such thing as an adoption that's an accident. <laughs> no, right? So we talk about that sometimes. Well, yeah, we were planning this one and we were planning this one, but yeah, you were an accident, right? No kid wants to be told he's an accident. <laughs> but there's no accidents in adoption, right? They're chosen. Right? They're chosen. Nor the will of the child has anything to do with That's right. That's right. So we see, we, so we begin to see now, we begin to see now this whole sense of this choosing, this adoption, which is the basis for the remaining blessings of being in Israelite. All the blessings that follow, follow and proceed from the fact that they were chosen by God. They were chosen by God. A particular people that he chose, again, for no reason in themselves. He says that in other places. Look, there was nothing all that lovely in you that I saw when I chose you. In fact, you know, you go on and you, you read in Ezekiel how I found you all covered with blood and I, you know, I cleaned you up and I clothed you. Just so there's nothing gorgeous about the people that were to become Israel by any stretch of the imagination. But this whole adoption chosen thing again is the basis for the remaining seven. He says they are the, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory, the glory, right? And we read so much about the glory of God in the Pentateuch. God revealed His glory to Israel in a way that He hadn't revealed it. Even going back to Adam and Eve. And, and, and we know that also in the temple, what was sort of... Well, you tell me, what's the central place? What's, what's the penultimate glory of God? Where are we going to find that? The Ark of the Covenant? Yeah, Absolutely. So so excellent is the Ark of the Covenant that David could dance half naked with it. We're going to hear about that upstairs this morning, right, brother? So, um, the glory of God in Israel, the Ark of His presence in the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat covering is, you know, the atoning seat that's over what contains the commandments that were constantly being broken, covered by the atoning mercy seat, which would be sprinkled with the blood. Man. So much so, right? When the ark was taken captive, right? In that big war with the Philistines and the Israelites and Eli's two sons were killed and he falls over backwards and breaks his neck because he was old and heavy set. His daughter-in-law had a child. And what did she name that child? Ichabod. Ichabod. And what does Ichabod mean? Glory the glory has departed. Yeah. The glory has departed Israel. <laughs> When the ark was captured, that was it. They said that the glory is gone. The glory is gone. It was their national treasure. It'd be like, um, it'd be like you know, Nicholas Cage stealing the Constitution. You know, or the the uh, not the Constitution. The, the, the um, thank you, Declaration of Independence. Right. That was the glory of Israel. Oh no, so much so that she named her son. The glory has departed. I'm glad we, glad we don't have names like that. You know. I know uh, Native Americans used to name people for certain things and events that they saw. Um, so they also had the covenants. What covenants? What covenants did Israel have? Throw some covenants at me. Abrahamic one. Yeah, right. That's the that's the first, the biggie, right? The Abrahamic covenant. What else? Yeah. Well, yeah, we had that. We had we had the covenant made with Moses of circumcision. We had covenant covenant made with David, the Davidic covenant, which is what. Gary, what is the, the Davidic covenant? covenant? Yeah. Well, that, that he would have a son that would reign on, on the throne. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah, right, and that's fulfilled in Jesus, of course, right? So they had the covenants. This is the, they, so they had the they had the adoption, they had the glory, they had the covenants. 
This is one thing piling on, one benefit after another after another. This is what it means to be the chosen of God. And they had the giving of the law, Paul says. Okay? Now, yes, we've heard a lot about life under the law and how that's uh, uh, unsatisfying. And going to the law to be sanctified is not only unsatisfying, but it's like doubly miserable. And he's like, it, and, but that doesn't mean the law wasn't wonderful and holy and good and glorious. <clears throat> There's a certain sense. There are writers that write about the Israel Exodus event coming to Sinai like a wedding event with God's people to himself as their husband. And the law was God's gift to his bride. It was a glorious thing. And we can look and see, how, see what David thought of the law. I mean, the Jews really considered, because the law was revealed so much of God's character to them, that, man, they thought that just by virtue of receiving the law of God, that they were good to go. Just the fact that they received it. And what a great advantage they were at, because that law was unlike any of the laws of the surrounding nations, except that it was structured very much like lots of the laws of the ancient Near East. Many of the laws of the ancient Near East would start out with the king making a declaration of what he had done for the people and what he expects from the people in return. Okay, you could look up suzerain treaties, S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N, and they all were like that. When a king captured a certain people, it took a certain people, he would start out by telling them, this is what I've done for you, this is what I expect in return. So it was structured very much like that. But it really addressed things that went beyond just the doing. Now, it took Jesus to bring that out, although we do see that in the honoring and the coveting, particularly in the coveting. You shall not covet. Right? That was a very unusual thing to show up. That didn't, that didn't look like the code of Hammurabi like many of the other things did. You know? So, it had, if we go look at... This is what God Himself says about... Go to Deuteronomy 4, 7, 8. What does Deuteronomy mean, by the way? Anyone know? There you go. Second law. Deut and onomy. I'm not quite sure what the er is. Yeah, uh, Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, 7 to 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Nobody's got anything like this. So, guidance and instruction, the revelation of God's character and His commitment, the way in which He made Israel distinct from all the other nations is all bound up in the law. You know? And yet Paul said just before this, <clears throat> knowing about the righteousness of God, they established their own. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, the worship was also theirs. The fifth great blessing of being an Israelite is the worship and so we have to assume, what is this basically going to mean? Where's all the worship? What's at the center of all the Israeli cultic practices? The temple, right? The temple. That's where it all happens. The temple is, I mean, that's where all the main worship went. That's where, obviously, as Wally alluded to, still kind of goes on today and all the various... But the temple was this glorious thing. So prepared by God, you read meticulously the detail that God put in, I guess, just reading it this week, all the detail that goes into how to sew things together and what distance apart to put them. I thought, man, God is so concerned about His temple. 
just like he is you and I. Right? So that's very symbolic, you know. But God is so concerned about the every little detail. He talks about how to stitch things together, what colors to put together with one another to best represent his glory and to provoke worship. You know? The temple was to provoke worship. The way the great medieval churches were made, they were built with illiterate people in mind who couldn't read, but they would go into these magnificent buildings and they'd be taken up out of their common humdrum existence of walking through garbage and feces and other waste that just got dumped in the streets all the time and living their life of, of, of hard, hard life to come into something beautiful and magnificent and just have stained glass at some point and just have them lifted completely out of that environment into something much more wonderful. The whole temple was designed that way. And much of the temple worship was all supposed to re- also supposed to remind them of Eden. Some of the marvelous things in the temple were included to be sort of copies of things that were in Eden. So, their whole temple life, they had the worship. It wasn't like the worship other religions got to do. There's something unique about Yahweh worship and the way Yahweh put all that together for them so that they could worship. You know? And he gifted people to build a temple. As we read back uh, last Tuesday, right? We were talking about ministry. We saw how God put his spirit in Bezalel so that he knew how to make things. It was the spirit at work in him so that he could be such a good builder. Why? So that that temple could look perfect. That temple could be just what God wants it to be. Right? Now, you know, application to you and I. And the promises, okay? Here's the sixth great blessing of being an Israelite. The promises. The greatest promises came before the law, right? Galatians, remember, Paul mentions that in Galatians. The, the law, which came 430 years after the promise, could not annul the promise. These guys had promises from God. How great is it to have promises from God? Because God just really commits His entire being to keeping the promises. Right? We read about that in Hebrews also, you know? So they had these magnificent promises. It's so easy in our life, we just have promises broken all the time, you know? We don't know what yea is and nay is all, all the time. And he said, these are also the patriarchs. They had the patriarchs. They had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they had... Why would that be important? Look at the great stories. Look at what happened in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that they could learn how God was acting in these people to bring about his fantastic plan to have a people for himself. So they had patriarchs. They had people going before. None of the other peoples had those kinds of really great stories. They had similar things going on. The people, before the Israelites got to... um, Before they got to... um, (laughs) Jericho. Before they got to Jericho, Rahab 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 said to them, Look, we've heard about you people. The news traveled fast about what kind of people this was, right? And who was leading them and what had happened in their lives. So, all the great history of how they came to be. And again, examples of how God relates to people that He's using and His plan to partner with, to have humanity partner with Him in ruling and having dominion. Partners with God. All this wonderful stuff. And you know what's interesting too, by the way? Lots of the surrounding nations. There's not an ancient civilization that doesn't have something in their writings about a great flood. Every ancient civilization in the ancient Near East has 
a story about a flood. It happened. Something happened over there. And, and lots of... And there's other similar things as well where other ancient civilizations wrote about what they were observing going on in the world around them. But they didn't have a good explanation. So they had the patriarchs. They had the forefathers. They had the founding fathers. It's like, you know, anyone that ever wants to play baseball, you know, they've got the Mickey Mantles to look back on and the Ted Williams and, and all of those greats. And then, of course, they had the ultimate great thing, the Christ. Jesus came from their race. That's, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's, that had to have been a pre For Paul, it was cool. For the unbelieving Jews, it wasn't. Right? But So Jesus was a Jew. He was Semitic. He had brown eyes. He had short, dark hair. He wasn't the long-haired, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Greek Adonis of, you know, medieval Roman art. He just wasn't. Morning, officer and sister. How you doing? So, um, so they had all these, all these things, but above all that, they had Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who the Jews had been anticipating forever and ever. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about that, the glory, you know, how God's presence was made known to them right in the glory. Now we have, of course, Jesus who is, who tabernacled among them, right? Who, who sort of came and literally lived among them. Okay, he's the Messiah, the promised prophet, the priest, the king, came from the Jews. The God-man came through the Jewish line, is the point Paul is making. That's how cool it is to be an Israelite. You know, we have so many of these companies that make a good fortune off people tracing their DNA and doing family ancestry, right? There are people that I know people that just, man, they just love to do that. They love to trace back their lineage, see who was in it, and know that they came from the same family, you know? Somebody in my family once found out we had a brigadier general under George Washington or something. Why is that cool? I don't know. It doesn't do me any good. But for some reason, people chase that stuff, right? A lot. And they find out, oh, look, this person was in my lineage. Oh, look, this person was in my lineage. Um, something about that is cool to us, isn't it? I, I don't even know why. This connection to greatness. Something transcendent. Something that transcends us. Connection. Something beyond ourselves. A connection which reminds us that there's something much more worth than just us. Something way beyond ourselves. So, if we can make those connections in other less significant places, imagine the significance of that for the Christ, the Messiah, coming from your line. So Paul's really sort of agonizing over them because of all this. He says, man, this is everything. They've got, Israelites, they've got the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Again, there's that according to the flesh. That's the only connection they have to Christ. That's the only connection they have to Christ. Which is what's breaking Paul's heart. So, we come to verses 6-7. to seven, But, it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this really is the main, the critical hermeneutic key for all of 9-11. If there's one thing that is so important to grasp here, if nothing else gets fully grasped, it is this. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Because that's got a big, big question. 
If all those benefits, but so many Jews are not saved, Paul, what's up with that? Why are there so many Jews not saved? And Paul says, well, and he's saying this, I think, to himself as well. I think he's consoling himself and comforting himself as well. But more than that, doing an apologetic, you know, Anyone that doesn't, that doesn't quite understand the role of apologetics in Christianity, Paul and Jesus were both constantly engaged in apologetics. It's the defense of the faith. Constantly. God's Word hasn't failed and it never will. And literally it says God's Word has not fallen. God's Word has not fallen. There's something going on here much deeper than DNA. Something much more important than DNA here. And so therefore there are some... There are many ethnic Israelites for whom those eight benefits have no attachment. There are many at this point, as Paul is, is, is writing this, for whom those eight benefits that are supposed to accrue to the Israelites have no accruing benefit. There's no attachment at all. There's no connection. The adoption is not theirs. The glory is not theirs. The covenants are not theirs. The giving of the law is not theirs. The worship is not theirs. The promises are not The patriarchs they have no reason to celebrate that the Messiah came from their race. You still Romans two twenty eight to twenty nine. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Something else going on. Abraham is not their father. That's what the text says. Not all are children of Abraham. Okay? And you recall that, what did they say to Jesus? We have Abraham as our father. No, you don't. Abraham's not your father. Abraham was the father of Ishmael and Isaac. For 13 years, there was a little boy named Ishmael whose life looked like any other life with any other, any other father in any other setting at that time. Ishmael's 13 years old before Isaac even comes along. But God said the offspring will come from Isaac. Not just the physical offspring. Although that's part of it too. Isaac is the child of promise versus children of the flesh. So here's that distinction we're seeing. Now it's beginning to come a little bit more in focus. You have children of the promise and children of the flesh. John 1, 12-13. Somebody quote that. John 1, 12-13. Yeah, right? Where it talks about, you know, he came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to then he gave the power to become children of God. Not those, again, that are born according to the flesh or human will or a father's will, a husband's will or whatever, but according to God. These, he says, are not the children of God. Wow. Imagine a Jew hearing that. Imagine just an ethnic, unbelieving Jew hearing that. Imagine saying this to Ben Shapiro today. You are not a child of God. Imagine saying that to Jordan Levy on his radio. I wouldn't, right? In fact, I once said on his program, Jordan, why is it so difficult to... What is logically wrong with the idea that there is sort of God has chosen for himself one particular way to reveal himself one truth by which all people can know him 
They said, oh, now you sound like a Roman Catholic, blah, blah, blah. Their church is the only way or something. And he completely missed the point of the question. The question was, what is illogical about the proposition that God has determined to reveal himself in a particular way? What's illogical about that? Why is it illogical to say there's only one way to the living God? You may not like it, and it may sound offensive, but what about it is irrational? And of course, Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. Yeah, right. So, and that's important to note, by the way, right? Um, because in a certain way, in the deeper way, we are all Jews. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, if you think about the paganism of the past mm-hmm. and the paganism we're entering into, I mean, the same message reassures the Christian mm-hmm. about the electing grace of God. Yeah, and that's what this is all setting up now because we're going to get more and more into, you know, next week, I think, if Seth is here, I told him, Seth, take another week off. It's a big deal. I'll carry on, take another week or whatever, but whatever, we're going to get into that more and more. It's going to get deeper and deeper. It's, we're just unraveling this now. But again, We've seen the foundation. So, he's a children of the promise. And again, what is the promise? This refers back to verse 9. Verse 9 refers to, uh, for this is, this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So, we know, if you recall, Abraham and Sarah are well beyond childbearing years. Sarah was postmenopausal. That means she had no eggs. Sarah had no eggs. She had no eggs in her with which to inseminate. So, you know, what a miracle, right? I mean, this should tell us so much about what we need to really know. And I'm assuming even at the age of 100, hey, look, both Sarah and Abraham laughed the first time God said this to them. God said this year, and Abraham was like, <laughs> he says he got down on his face, he says, the guy is going to be a father? And is a 90-year-old woman going to give birth? He just fell down on his face and laughed. And, and Sarah had the same response. She laughed to herself. Remember? And then remember when, when the angel said to her, what would you laugh for? She said, oh no, I didn't laugh. And, yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. They laughed. So I don't even know if at that point Abraham was able to perform his part as a man in the process. And that's important. That's so important because we began to see the following key things important for the entirety of chapters 9 to 11. We see the absolute impossibility of something. So we see the foundations for God's purposes in election, which is what we hear about next week, God's purposes in election. So we see the foundations for that here. See, we already see it has nothing to do with human ability. This is a first really big clue. It has nothing to do with human capacities or human abilities because, again, of the child of promise thing. Forget about the Hagar thing. This just doesn't count doesn't count. God made a promise and therefore we see the sense right away. Okay, this is what we're beginning to see that's foundational. God made a promise and so we get a sense right away that if there are to be any offspring of God in the redemptive sense, then God must fulfill His promise. Okay? That's important to keep... No, right? Because we don't have the egg of obedience and faith in us, so to speak. We don't have the egg of obedience or faith in us. This is created out of a whole cloth, so to speak. Another foundational point, there is an Israel inside of Israel. There's an Israel inside of Israel. That's why Paul says, and it says here in the text, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, but descended is not in the original, it's not in the the actual language. Not all Israel are Israel. 
is what it says. Not all Israel are Israel. Right? That's why the question comes up, is you is or is you ain't Israel? Right? There is an Israel inside of Israel. Very important for what's going on in the rest of 9 through 11. Because it's not up to humans, then then this is important too. I think this comes out of this. Another foundational thought. Because it's not up to humans, then there is hope even for those who believe and act as if it is up to humans. Right? This is going to come up in Romans 11. The whole grafting back in. The original branches, they can be grafted back in. So, even humans that think it's up to humans, there's hope for them. Why? Because it's not up to humans. (laughs) It opens up the theological door. It makes doctrinal space for all Israel will be saved. In 1126. Mm -hmm. Whatever that means when we get to it. So, So, that's in place here. And again, like I mentioned, Paul is sort of the master chess player, always anticipating five or six moves ahead and anticipating objections and overcoming them and getting ready to set up this great big discussion that's coming up of God's absolute freedom to do exactly what He wants to do. Well, it's a mystery. John Hagee gets this uh, thing about Israel will be restored and all of it. I don't know. We'll have to deal with them when we get to it. Quite possibly. I don't know where you know they, they twist the Scriptures for that, but they do twist them. Oh, yeah. um, and, and so, God's Word has not fallen. He's being faithful to exactly what he said, even though many would not have understood that back then. So we already begin to see the underpinnings of everything that's going to be built upon this. These first nine verses are critical for understanding those particular things, most particularly that God made a promise. His word has not failed. He made a promise. All these other things, they have a place in the discussion. But one thing you've got to keep in mind above all things is and this, again, sets up the whole discussion for God's purposes and election in the hardening of Israel, okay, and the giving of, of, of creating for himself, as we'll see in the, in the chapters 10 and 11 and the rest of 9, having himself for a people that are not my people. I will call you a people who are not my people, and I will call a people not my people my people. How that applies to both Gentiles and uh, Jews at some point. Okay, how Hosea applies to both. So all this stuff is being set up this week. That's why it's very important that we get from this text the main, the main thing, the Word of God has not failed and that God is doing something that God committed Himself to do a long time ago. And so everything else that comes from this comes from that main, that pillar, that, that supporting keystone concept in the arch of doctrine that God does what God says He's going to do and He can do that because He's God. And therefore, you know, again, the Israelites are being encouraged to ask themselves, we're being asked to consider, is you is, or is you ain't, Israel. Alright. So, Randy, would you pray for us? Mm-hmm.